0: Hello Outward listeners, happy Pride Month. Producer June Thomas here. As I mentioned last Wednesday, this month in honour of Pride, we're going to be bringing you an episode of Outward every week. You'll still get the biggie on June 22nd, but we're also going to supply some shorter snacks of gay goodness along the way. Today, we wanted to share a conversation I had last summer with Joan E. Byron, known to one and all as Jeb. It was for Working Slate's podcast about the creative process. And in the interview, Jeb discusses the creation, funding and printing of her groundbreaking 1979 photo book, Eye to Eye Portraits of Lesbians, which was reissued by Anthology Editions in 2021. I hope you enjoy it. Please join us next week for a delightful conversation that Brian, Christina and Jules had about the big summer rom-com, Fire Island. Thanks for listening and stay gay, everyone. So who are you and what do you do?
1: Well, my name is
0: Joan Byron.
1: I also go by the name Jeb. I am a supposedly retired, but not really... (laughs) photographer, filmmaker, and activist.
0: So I should say before we start that although our paths haven't crossed all that much in the last couple of decades, we knew each other back in the 80s in Washington, D.C., uh, when I was on the Off Our Backs Collective and worked at Llamas, I think, um, and we were both dykes about town. Uh, but I also remember like filling in an official form every year so that you got a city press pass. So you know, we we and we were in the same kind of activist circles by then. Um, but you weren't part of the collective of Off Our Backs. You were kind of an independent creator, right?
1: Yes, I think it's important to point out that through all my years of being a still photographer. I never had any institutional support. I never got grants or fellowships or any of that. And all of my uh, financial support came from within the lesbian community by people coming to see my slideshows and buying my books and so on.
0: Your classic book, Eye to Eye Portraits of Lesbians, which was first published in 1979, um, but which has been out of print for many years, has just been reissued. So we've got a bit of a history-based episode today. Um, We're not necessarily talking about your creative process today in in 2021 as to what your creative process was back when you put this book together in 1979. So what was your life like in 1979?
1: Yes, so in 1979, I was a lot younger and (laughs) I was out as a lesbian and I was trying to find visual images of lesbians because I needed to see them, you know, and I I couldn't find images that looked like me or you or (laughs) our friends or our lovers. The images I found were either overly romanticized and, you know, white, young, slim people, or they were the monstery, scary, porno-type images. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I decided to try to make those images myself. And then when I had what I thought was a good number that represented a good cross-section of our population, I decided to make a book and... I ended up self-publishing for reasons we can get into if you want to.
0: I mean, I know that when the book came out, it was the first book of photographs of lesbians by a lesbian explicitly acknowledged as such to be published, which, I mean, first of all, that's a lot of firsts, but also I think a lot of kind of younger people who've grown up in recent years almost kind of don't quite believe that that's possible,
1: Oh, they totally don't believe it. People all over the world don't
0: believe it. So creating the first instance of something is magnitudes harder than doing subsequent ones, even if subsequent ones are themselves hard. So do you remember not only deciding you wanted to do a book, but like deciding that you could? Well, I... That it would be possible? I did
1: not know if it would be possible until... I asked the women that I wanted to photograph if they would agree to have their faces and names in the book that said where the photograph was made. Mm -hmm. And that was sort of irreparably coming out for those people. And anybody could get a book. And if the women had not agreed, there would have been no book. It was the courage of these women that made the book possible. And uh, there were many women who could not agree to do that. There were women who ran the other way when they saw a (laughs) camera. And the reason is that there were great risks Mm. to coming out at that time. And I absolutely understood why people would not agree. And, you know, you could lose your children, your home, your family... You could be deported. I mean, so many things that were horrible were legal to Mm -hmm. be done to you. And yet, here were these courageous women who understood that lifting the burden of hiding, of lying, of denying who you were was also worth taking some risks. Mm -hmm. And it was by them showing other people that it was possible is, I think, a great deal of the power of this book was as the power of example and that it it became sort of not only representational in that way, but aspirational Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. some people.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, I will get back to the book and the making of it in a second, but I'm also aware that, you know, the book... It was somewhat hard to find, even, you know, in the early days. Like, you kind of had to go into a feminist bookstore, probably. Um, But you had postcards, too, right? A lot of the photos in the book were also available as postcards. And I feel like those were even more... I mean, of course, they were more accessible in the sense they were cheaper. They were easier to buy, (laughs) and people would put them up on their walls. Like, that was really putting yourself out there, right? I mean, they weren't only going to live in a book.
1: You know... The whole reason I was making the photographs was so that people would have them. And I wanted them to be as accessible as possible. So most of the photographs of mine that I ever saw were on cheap newsprint and mm-hmm. looked awful. Yes. So, when, you know, halftones bleeding into themselves. And I made the postcards and the book and some calendars so that people could purchase them and take them home and and have them. And there are some wonderful stories about people seeing the postcards up on people's fridges and that being a signal to each other, uh, you know, people finding each other as lesbians because of seeing my images in their homes, Mm -hmm. and
0: that makes me, you know, thrilled. I bet. Okay, so back to the the book. You've made the decision you're going to do it. You've realized that women are, are willing to have their photos, you know, go out into the world. But then you had to take them because these photos are not all just taken, you know, in your backyard. These women are all over the country. They're all different kinds of women. How did you find them?
1: Well, we have to remember there was no Internet. Right. So it was difficult to find them. And what I did was travel all around, and I was sort of passed from friend to friend, and it was all word of mouth. I had a vision of what I wanted in the book. I knew it couldn't be just our friends, you know, in Washington, D.C., because we were too alike. And Mm -hmm. our politics, although we didn't have the word were intersectional. Mm -hmm. So I would go to a place and I would say, well, I need uh, a rural farming lesbian. Do you know any? Or I need a working class, you know, older woman. Or I Mm -hmm. need whatever I was looking for, I would ask and uh, people would say, well, you could try this person, you could try that person. Well, I don't know, but ask this other person. And in that way, it was a very collaborative national uh, endeavor.
0: (laughs) So you were really kind of tapping into the network. And were you writing letters to people? Yes. (laughs) So it would take a while just to hear back, right? I mean, we're so used now to just getting an instant response on email or Slack or something. But... You had to wait for it to get there, find people, come back, right? I mean, do you know how long it took to kind of gather the photos? When did you, like, it came out in 79. Do you recall when you started taking the photos that were in there?
1: I started in 1971, but the truth is that the bulk of the photos were actually all done in the year prior to the publication.
0: It must have cost quite a bit of money to travel around, Uh, And I know you were doing movement jobs. I mean, how did you pay for the travel to make the photos and meet the women who you were going to be photographing? Because I can tell from these photos that you didn't meet them and take the photos five minutes later and move on.
1: No, there is quite a process involved, as you can imagine. But the way I got around was, you know, in a broken down old car. (laughs) uh, And I stayed with people and... uh, as you know, most lesbians have cats, and I'm allergic <laughs> to cats, so oh it was difficult. That was my, you know, I needed OSHA or something. And, <laughs> uh, but the process was, if somebody had been identified to me as a possible person who might be in the book, I would usually meet them or talk to them or write to them uh, without a camera being present at all and I would explain what I was doing. I would be very clear that this was meant for publication. I had designed special release forms that said I can be identified as a lesbian, I can have my name, I can have whatever, and then people could decide whether they wanted their whole name or just their first name. And mostly what the process was that was for me to explain... Why I thought they, in particular, would be a wonderful person to be in the book. Why I wanted them Mm. to be in the book. And, you know, it was a way of building understanding and trust before we got to the place when there was a camera present.
0: Would there be, like, a photo session? I mean, that feels like something you would do in a studio, but you were in their homes, you were in their fields if they were in a rural situation. Um, Was there a general kind of picture of the experience of making the photos that eventually, you know, made it into the book or into into your other photographic output, if you will?
1: It depended on how much time I would have with the person, but I always wanted as much time as possible, because the longer you hang out with somebody with a camera the less aware of the camera they become and they just start being more and more whoever they are and I'm very non-directive you know I would much prefer the person to just do their life and let me you know follow them around so if that was possible that's the way we did it if we had a very short Time frame, I would say to them, Well, how would you like to do this? Mm. Where would you like to be in your home or in your space, and what would you like to be doing? And then, you know, we'd go from there. But I do not believe in posing people because it decreases the authenticity of the photograph to me. I think people understand it and feel the energy of a photograph, even if they're not conscious of what they're experiencing, looking at it. I think the energy that have, was happening when it was made is in the image.
0: Yeah. And you always, I mean, I'm, I, I'm saying this is just because it's my experience of your work, but did you always work in black and white? No,
1: no. I mostly worked in black and white because all the publications could only print black and white because black and white was cheaper because I could do all my own developing and enlarging and that there was still a risk if you sent your film to a professional commercial Place that they would confiscate it based on the obscenity laws. Mm. So, for a long time, I did not sh- use color film, but when I could afford it, I started using two cameras, one with black and white and one with uh, slide film, and then I started making slideshows.
0: Uh huh, uh huh. So, the book was published by glad had books. But that's you, right? (laughs) That's me.
1: There's no other (laughs) glad hag. I'm the only one. And I had no staff, no nothing, just me.
0: (laughs) So you'd already done this tough job of going out there into the world, finding women to take photos of, getting out there, taking their photos, getting their permission. Then the whole work of making a book. First of all, like how did you pay for it?
1: I did what we would now call crowdfunding or <laughs> Kickstarter, Indiegogo. Mm. I mm. raised the money within the community. Most of it was loans, small loans by a lot of people and one or uh, really one major donor who also forgave her loan. Oh. But you know it was funded by the community mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. i sure didn't have the money right, and right. no existing lesbian or gay press would do it because i wanted it on good paper as we said i had ever ever okay. only seen it on Newsprint, and I was determined that it would be on coded stock, and that was too expensive yeah. for the existing presses because they could put out, you know, like five books of text. Mm-hmm. So the hardest part was not raising the money. The hardest part was finding a printing press that would print these images. And what I had to do was get a very young... Nan Hunter who had just gotten out of law school and was turned out to be one of the you know best uh, lesbian lawyers ever
0: mm-hmm.
1: she had to go to the press and develop this legal paper that exempted them from liability when wow. because they thought that all the women would sue them because they were being identified as lesbians because it was so unheard Mm -hmm. of and because the press was somehow legally liable if they did the printing. So we had to get a second round of releases in which we lost some of the people because, you know, and then we had this legal exemption and then one of the printers refused on religious grounds to work on the project and then because I did not have enough money I had to sort of camp out at the press which was in Baltimore to look at the proofs as they came off the press because I didn't have the money you know to pause the press to have them send me the proofs Mm -hmm. so the printing was really a hard piece of getting it made.
0: How many copies did you print of the in the original?
1: The original run was 5,000 copies, which is a lot for yeah. a photography book. And it sold out, yeah. I think, in three months. Wow. And wow. then I went back to press and did a second printing, which also sold out pretty rapidly. And it speaks to the hunger that yeah. was in our community to have authentic reflection of who they were books just disappeared and and many of them also disappeared without being bought from uh bookstores and libraries because people were so afraid they just you know steal this book and i'm glad they did
0: So one of the things that struck me as I was, it's funny, I haven't seen the book for years because I didn't have a copy uh, and it's been kind of one of those lost books. Um, I'm so glad to see it reissued. Um, And this will sound weird, but I was struck by how a lot of the women are topless. I mean, part of it is I think lesbians used to get topless more back in the day, but also like, was that an issue? I mean, obviously when when we think of photography books, having topless or nudity like that's not that's not a problem that's part of the art of photography Uh, there's a lot of lot going on there but you know that's that's a reasonable point of view but there's a documentary feel to this book and so I don't know the the sort of partial nudity feels um, feels a little different in that kind of documenting lives context even though being undressed at certain points is indeed part of life
1: Well, people did think there was a lot of nudity at the time. (laughs) And people asked me, did I ask these people to take their clothes off? Well, no, this was how we were. As you said in in your question, there was a lot of nudity back then, much more than now, I think. And the only thing I ever did was if someone was nude I said to them would you like me to take my clothes off too because that would again equalize the power dynamic and uh, I have to
0: say nobody ever said no (laughs) Um, so the book comes out sells well but like what do you do then
1: well my next act was I was going to go on a very short promotional tour And my friend and colleague and mentor, T. Corinne said to me, well, if you want to go around, you should have a slideshow. So I put together a slideshow that was called uh, Lesbian Images in Photography, 1850 to whatever the year was Mm -hmm. and became known as the Dyke Show. And (laughs) I ended up traveling with that show not for a short promotional tour, but from 1979 to like 1985 or something like that. Mm. And it was wonderful because while I was traveling with that show, I was photographing for my next book, which came out in 1987 and was called Making Away Lesbians Out Front also published by Gladhag Books. And the reason I did not keep eye-to-eye eye in print was because I needed the money to make the next book.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: So that's why I was so thrilled when Anthology Editions last year came to me and said, hey, do you want to reissue this book? And I said, I have always always wanted to reissue this book.
0: There must have been some decisions that you had, though, around the reissue, like how much of the original, what you would change, if you would change anything. Can you talk about how uh, this particular issue, the reissue, is different from the original? Well, Anthology
1: Editions is a publisher who really want to stay as true to the original as possible, but here are the changes that we made, all of which have just elevated the book. And I'm just, I couldn't be more happy and pleased about this reissue. First of all, we went back to the original negatives. We rescanned everything. We re-edited, edited meaning we brought out everything that was in that negative that Because Mm. the technology is so much better now, you couldn't see before. And then they were printed in gorgeous duotone. So they are really uh, beautifully printed. And it's a hardback book now. And it has Mm. this great feel to it, cloth cover. And uh, inside, all the images are exactly the same, The layout is exactly the same. The design, the font, all of that is exactly the same. What is different inside besides the images looking so much better is that we added two essays. One is um, by the wonderful photographer Lola Flash, and the other is by the champion soccer player, Lori Lindsay, because she's a totally different generation, so she could speak mm-hmm. to that. And we added an essay by T. Corinne, uh, because even though she's no longer with us, because she was uh, so important to me, I wanted her mm-hmm. voice in there. And then I spent a great deal of time revising the notes and resources at the end of the book. So that even though you can't click on the URLs, they are there <laughs> and in an updated version. So there's a lot of new text, but it do, it's around the core of the book being exactly what it was.
0: Yeah. Well, as you say, um, you know, we didn't have the word intersectional back then, but uh, it is there's a, a, a lot of different kinds of women. Uh, it's certainly not all young white women. Um But you mentioned having some regret about one group of people being maybe overrepresented and one group and certainly some people being underrepresented. Can you talk about that?
1: I'm a lot fatter now than I was then.
0: (laughs) Me too. (laughs) And I really regret not having
1: more fat women in the book. It was not part of my consciousness to do that. And I think it's a mistake.
0: There's a quote from Alison Bechdel on the sort of plastic shrink wrap about this this book uh, being like a lost family album, which feels really profound. Um, You know, we don't have photos of um, self-described, of out lesbians before yours, certainly not in any easily accessible way. Like, have you been aware of the importance of this book and of your work and of your postcards and of just... Of this thing that you did, I mean, not that you stopped working in the 80s, but, you know, those early photos do feel like they have some extra resonance, I think.
1: I do. At the time that it came out, I got a lot of letters that I have recently reviewed because they were, you know, in my archives. People saying, Mm. I was about to give up. You saved me. People... Yeah. Uh, today, because the book has been reissued, art saying what it meant to them then, lots of yeah. um, wonderful uh, messages on my Facebook page from people who said, "I still have my original." You know it meant so much to me. Yeah. I, I get emotional. <laughs> quite right, and the quite reason right. I get emotional is because this is why I did it. And people do tell me. People have told me all through all these years. Um, and uh, it is what keeps you going because, as you said, you're certainly not making money.
0: Um, you know, I, as I say, we, we've not been in constant contact by any means, but because... I was in D.C. in the 80s and you were such a part of the community. You were always at events. You were always, you know, always staring up good trouble. And um, I always thought of you as being, you know, so very central um, to the movement, to various movements. But that's a but. um, But you weren't necessarily recognized beyond the community. Um, And it feels like in recent years, finally, that has started to happen. this reissue. Um, You recently had an exhibition at the Leslie Lohman Museum in New York City. When I go to the National Portrait Gallery, I see your photographs, which is I love portrait galleries, but that that's my favorite thing about about the whole thing. Can you talk about like that feeling of I don't know if you feel like you're being rediscovered or getting attention that you should have gotten earlier late? How do you kind of process this whole thing that's going on?
1: My primary feeling is I'm so glad I lived long enough to see it because when I was making the work I always knew it was important and I thought it would be recognized after I was dead and the fact that I can enjoy the recognition is really something I'm exceedingly grateful for. Saying I was not necessarily recognized is a big understatement June <laughs> outside <laughs> i recognize outside you. of the lesbian community i nobody knew who I was, nobody cared about my work, and the most surprising thing that's happening now, well, maybe not the most surprising, but one of the things that is surprising to me is that my work is not only being. Recognized and acknowledged as important documentary, which is what I thought would happen. But it is being looked at as art and being appreciated as art. And that is beyond what I had hoped for.
0: Do you have any regrets about choosing the path you did? Um, you know, you had other options. You were very, you're very credentialed. You went to a Seven Sisters College. You had a graduate degree at a time when many fewer people did than do now. Um, you spent three years at Oxford University, uh, but you chose a political path. And I imagine that young people might be sort of wanting to hear from someone who made a choice like that many years ago and and uh, how they feel about it. Uh a few decades later
1: i would choose it again in a second <laughs> i have no regrets my parents had a lot of regrets that i did not become a lawyer <laughs> uh, so, so my sister became a lawyer but mm. i have no regrets i really loved doing what i did for my whole life if had i not loved it as much i i don't think i would have made some of the sacrifices that it required mm. to be, uh, you know, an artist, activist uh, my whole life. Uh, and I just loved the life that I had. I loved the work that I did.
0: Joan E. Byron, thank you so much for chatting today. I'm forever a fan. I'm so glad we got to talk with you about your the process of making this amazing book on working. Thank you. Thank you, June.